0: Hello, and welcome to a New Year's episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf. And today we are joined by our favorite gang, starting with Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute, who looks to me via our Zoom link like she's in California.
1: That is exactly right, David. I am nestled in the new year into my native land here in Northern California.
0: Well, that sounds like a a great place to be. You know, you would have been joined by Rosa Brooks, but I don't know if some of you have seen her, the emails she sent us. But uh, she lives in Alexandria, Virginia, where there was so much snow there is no power that she is rationing gasoline, and that she's afraid of. Uh, and this is a California reference that her you know household may turn into the Donner Party at any minute. She is unable. To join us. Fortunately, from that part of the world, we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing, Ed?
2: Very well. Thank you, David.
0: And from a, I don't know if it's a snowier part of the world or not, we have David Sanger from the New York Times. How are you doing, David? Good. I'm in Vermont.
3: I came up here to escape all the snows of Washington. I needed a, a sort of balmier, you know, environment. And that seemed uh, seemed it.
0: Oh I got I got to tell you the most harrowing headline of the of the or tweet of the new year I've seen so far was one from Senator Tim Kaine who was driving from his office or his home 2 hours outside of Washington to Washington as of yesterday and the tweet came 13 hours after his departure and that he had been on I-95 stuck the whole time
3: pretty wild you know one could raise the interesting question of If you took all 100 members of Congress and you stuck them on I-95 for 13 hours straight, would more get done or less get done?
0: An interesting question. I don't know, maybe somebody ought to invest in U.S. infrastructure, like (laughs) snow shovels or something. (laughs) In any event, I thought it made sense, as we often do here, as we have in our conversations among each other now for whatever it is, seven or eight years. Start the year by looking ahead, recognizing that often by looking ahead, we get things wildly wrong or miss things. For example, if last year on January 4th, we had looked ahead to all the big events of the year, we would have been wrong by January 6th because I don't think anybody saw that coming quite the way it was. But I thought, you know, let's start, let's look around the world, let's see what you think are going to be the headlines of 2022. Why don't we start with you, Ed?
2: Well, I mean, I have to, first of all, go to a situation on the Ukrainian border. Putin is clearly going to do something. It could be sweeping. It could be more beneath the radar. It could be little green men. It could be tanks sort of crossing the Vistula. I don't know. I don't know which it's going to be, but he's not got dressed up um, like this. Um, only to say he's got no place to go. Um, so I think that the, the sort of sense of foreboding about um, the Ukrainian situation is entirely realistic. Our planning of, of how we respond to this, and indeed how we try and prevent the worst case scenario from happening, is still, I think, in the fairly in the fairly unformed stage. You've not yet got anything like European and American unity on this question. The new German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is going to hold a bilateral, very traditional German summit with Putin, in which presumably gas prices and the Russian gas supply is going to form part of the conversation. So I I do think this is the most likely probable test geopolitically that we're going to see in 2022. My fear is that Omicron. 2.0 2.0 or whatever the next um, letter in the Greek alphabet is going to be another fairly likely challenge in 2022, that this pandemic is not yet an endemic. And all the complications that flow from having this rolling on and having a sort of not groundhog day but groundhog year, 2020 is the longest year of, of my life so far, and, and th- those are the two negative ones.
0: Your big worries for 2022 is a good way to set the tone, as Ed has done. I think, by the way, Ed, if there's another variant of COVID that comes through, we should call it OMG-icron, because I don't think anybody will be able to take it emotionally. We seem to be having trouble with this one. But Corey, let me start with you on what Ed has just talked about with regard to Putin. You've talked about your concerns about this for some time. While I want you to answer the, the broader question about your worries for the year, I'm just interested, is there any possible scenario in your mind where Putin has done all this to pose, get a reaction out of the West, maybe get some behind the scenes promises about Ukraine and NATO, look strong and not actually engage in Ukraine?
1: Yes, I do think that's a possibility, David, for a couple of reasons. So, I'm only about 55% confident that Putin is not massing forces on the border of Ukraine in order to invade Ukraine. So, to me, it's a 65 45 breakdown, but I can see other objectives he would be seeking. And it seems to me Putin's not a very good strategist, but he's a good tactician. That is, you know, his aggressive moves have served to make Russia feel not European in the cultural and political sense and to isolate Russia's economy. And I can see why that serves his near-term needs, but I do think that's an enormous strategic price he has incurred for Russia with his actions, not just in Europe, but Syria and elsewhere. If he's playing tactics, I can see several objectives he might want to achieve Short of invading Ukraine, one is long-term stationing of Russian forces in Belarus, where some of them have been forward deployed, thus consolidating Belarus once again as part of the Russian sphere of influence. That's been a consistent uh, objective of his actions in Belarus and about Belarus for about two years now. The fun and games of trying to Persuade Germany to be a neutral rather than a Western force in Europe and beyond. The possibility of cooperating with China. I can think of a big strategic objective Putin might be attempting to achieve, which is the eventual collapse of the dollar zone. If Russia's play about Ukraine precipitates the economic sanctions that the Biden administration and NATO allies have agreed upon, that would force Russia into territory like the petro-yuan or trying to find alternative currency means that the United States couldn't control. And they would have Chinese and other cooperation in that, Iranian cooperation in that. So I can see lots of objectives Putin might have tactical and even a couple strategic, short of the occupation of Ukraine. But again, I think the Occam's razor explanation is Putin's massing forces on the border of Ukraine in order to threaten the sovereignty of Ukraine.
3: Let me pick up on the Ukraine thoughts. I'm basically in agreement with Ed and Corey here. I think that the big lesson that Putin has learned in recent times, both in the cyber field, in his attacks on Ukraine and what he's done in Belarus, is that if you really want to confuse the West, you dice and slice and you do things in small ways so that none of it is quite big enough to bring about a massive reaction. The Europeans don't unify on energy issues that the Americans can't quite figure out their sanctions. So when you talk to people in the administration about what are the the different scenarios they're thinking about, there's everything from the massive invasion, you know, the pincher movement where he comes in through Belarus, but also comes up from where his troops are now massing, to just taking a bit more of the Russian-speaking territories, to getting his land bridge back to Crimea, to making it as far as the Dnieper River or something like that, dividing the country to doing cyber attacks that would have the benefit of helping destabilize the government. And my guess is that he's going to try these in an incremental way, keep the pain level up for as long as possible, make the West confusion all the more evident. And you know we're in an odd position right now where what the United States is trying to do is basically slow this down with diplomacy while we're complaining that what the Iranians are doing with their Iran negotiations is slowing this down with diplomacy. We don't have a huge number of cards to play here. And Putin recognizes that.
0: I don't mean to take away from the seriousness of this conversation, although I think that seems to be my role here. But I do think there is a deep state radio drinking game that we could enter into where every time David mentions cyber, you get to drink. Every time Ed uses a polysyllabic word that you haven't heard, you drink. Every time Corey mentions a 19th century American foreign policy, you drink. I, I just wonder if that were the drinking game, how deep into any individual episode people would get while sober.
3: What are we drinking? If if the discussion is Ukraine, clearly it's going to have to be the Russian, or Ukrainian
0: vodka. <laughs> yeah, well, and that would that would have them insensible pretty quickly. Ed, let me pick up on this worries of the year, and I don't want to put one into your head, and you you can offer you know others others of course, but just as I'm listening to this, I was thinking of this weird thing that happened where the pr- former president of the United States just uh, put out an endorsement of Viktor Orbán, and you know, I think of that happening in the very beginning of the year. And then I think of the U.S. elections in November and possible developments there. And I'm just wondering if one of the big things we should be worrying about here is further erosion in democracy and and sort of liberal ideals, something you've written about.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very good question. Uh, I mean, the Trump endorsement of Orban you know, shouldn't surprise us. I mean, in, in many senses, the Republican Party has been very explicitly and the conservative sort of broader mm-hmm. conservative um, media entertainment complex has very explicitly been learning from Orbán. and very, you know, Tucker Carlson being one example, but many other conservative quotation marks, uh, intellectual figures, thought leaders have been beating their, the path to Budapest to be seen with and photographed with and take advice from Orban. So I think it's no surprise that that is the model for the conservative movement in America and for the Republican Party is to bring about essentially a one party democracy and a liberal democracy with, you know, without having to overtly launch any coups. And Orban is the most successful exponent of that. Perhaps Narendra Modi is close behind. That said, I mean, there is an election in Hungary this year, and the model that um, opponents of Orbán are touting as their most likely path to unseating him is the Israeli one, which is that everybody, it's a bit like sort of murder on the Orient Express, everybody's fingerprints are on the dagger of the alternative coalition, but sworn enemies, people on the far left neo-Nazi parties on the far right and all in between. Everybody who isn't with Orban gets together and to, to share their votes and defeat him. And so it's not inconceivable. 2022 will be the year that Orban is, A, defeated at home, and then B, starts to meet real resistance now that Angela Merkel has left office in Germany, starts to meet real resistance from the European Union. Which has been it's been treating Hungary and Poland with kid gloves um, for the last few years, but the larger the you know the larger concern that that the Republican Party is basically has basically embraced the nihilistic model of the Fidesz party in, in in Hungary that is you know remains the big existential worry for all of us. I think the future of American democracy.
0: So, Corey, across the world, there are little pockets of people that seem to be adapting a Hungarian model of democracy, diminished democracy. I think that would come as a surprise for those of you who were betting on major European trends influencing the world over the course of the past several decades that Hungary would lead the way. But nonetheless, there are these islands of thought in Brazil and in India and here in the U.S. and in Hungary and in Russia that uh, I feel compelled to refer to as the goulash archipelago.
2: I think deep state listeners should drink at that point. At the point uh, of ism
0: the terrible dad joke of foreign policy. What are what are your concerns on this front?
1: So, I think you give Hungary too much credit, but I think we can keep the Rothkoffism of the goulash archipelago, especially since the Progenitor of this rescission of democracy is Vladimir Putin himself. So Freedom House has been tracking the constriction of democracy in lots of states for 15 years at least. And I think one important milestone, perhaps the first, is Putin putting Medvedev in as as prime minister. So that's where I'd mark it. And of course, that gives such a nice resonance because of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's great classic from which the Rothkopism is a riff also still works. I do think this is cause for big concern. I think there are two different kinds of threats of authoritarianism. One is, you know, the Orban Putin school of canny dictators finding ways to suffocate, actually three uh, different explicit trends. One is the canny dictator trend, Putin, Orban. The second is the flat stamping out China and Hong Kong and the threats it's posing to Taiwan, where the sheer threat of force without even the pretense of legislative process or electoral legitimacy. And then the third is the one that Ed mentioned, which I think we ought to give credit to Frank Fukuyama for, because it is where he ends his book, the triumphalist tome from the 1990s about the end of history. Because Frank does point out that the biggest threat to the continued success of freedom and democracy is going to be boredom and aggression from within democratic states. That's the last man he's talking about in the end of history and the last man. And that, I think, is what we see in the United States and other parts of the cultural and political West.
0: David, I wonder if this is not very Western-centric, Eurocentric Thinking And that, you know, in 2022, we really ought to beginning our discussions about the future and, and biggest trends in geopolitics with a discussion of China. And one of the ones I worry about, and you and I have talked about even off the podcast, is the rise of a U.S.-China Cold War. I, as you know, I think that would be a terrible mistake and misunderstands the nature of the U.S.-China relationship, at least any analogy with the last Cold War would. But what do you worry about in terms of the growing influence of China in the course of the yearhead?
3: So David, it's a great question. I've got sort of two interrelated worries. So the first is how we think about China here at home. For a while earlier in the year, we were Thinking and saying on this podcast that China was the one issue that was unifying Democrats and Republicans. And you saw it in the way the Senate passed the China bill, which was basically an industrial policy effort to bolster American industry on the theory that you can't fight something with nothing. And that if we didn't get our semiconductor industry back, if we didn't figure out our export controls in a rational way, If we didn't give other nations an alternative to Chinese designed 5G networks, then you knew where this whole thing was going to end. And I was somewhat optimistic about that. The China bill has still not come up for a vote in the House. There's been every number of excuses for it. We have to go deal with Build Back Better first. We have to go deal with voting rights first. All vitally important issues. But what I fear for 2022 is that we're losing our thread a little bit and our focus on China. We're losing it in part because domestically we've had other priorities that have come up. Though so I don't think passing that bill would have been all that hard had they done it in the summer and gotten going. Secondly, I fear we're losing it because Vladimir Putin is proving a very good disruptor and thus a distraction from the central game that we've got to, got to go do. Remember why it is that Biden said he was leaving Afghanistan, even if he left it poorly? He was leaving to go focus on China. Actually, he said he was leaving leaving to focus on China and cyber. But that's only because he wanted in on our drinking game.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm Uh, (laughs) drinking.
3: So that's what I worry about at home. On the Cold War issue, I worry that We're talking ourselves into a Cold War here. Both sides keep saying we're not engaged in a Cold War. But when you press the Chinese, they say, well, we're not engaged in one, but you are. Look at all the Cold War-like behavior you've engaged in in the past year, raising these kind of issues about Taiwan and trying to get more countries to support Taiwan, uh, protesting against our internal affairs in Hong Kong. And against the uh, the Uyghurs, putting sanctions on things, putting export controls on things. So they argue that we're fighting a cold war and they're not. We argue the opposite that we're standing up for core American values, and that in threatening Taiwan and expanding into the South China Sea, and trying to go use the networks they're building around the world to build influence and buying their way into countries that feel a little bit lost that they're engaging in Cold War activity. And sooner or later, and I suspect it's sooner, and it's in 2022, when you have both sides thinking that the other one is engaged in a Cold War-like set of behaviors, then you're in a Cold War.
0: Indeed. This is normally the point in the program in which we take a a brief break. So those of you who are joining us who are not members, we can sign off to and say we wish you a Happy New Year. And those of you who are members, we will continue on and look at some more developments in 2022, black swans and good developments. And for those of you who are not members and who want to participate in the full line of programs we've got, not just the whole programs, but also a bunch of the special events we've got for members, what I would suggest you do is go to the dsrnetwork.com and sign up and become a member. Uh, It's a good uh, way to fulfill your New Year's resolution to be better informed and better engaged. We hope you'll do that and uh, join us for the rest of this or be able to go back and listen to the whole podcast because one of the interesting things we've learned about our deep state nerds who are listening to these shows is that they often listen to our archive and we encourage that. Thanks to those of you who are leaving us and join us again soon. And for the rest of us, we'll be back in a tiny moment.